Will we ever get to utopia? Does it really matter? As long as we continue to progress in a way that is allowing us to make decisions quicker, to understand data more, and flexibly react to what we just don't know yet. That's the direction that we think things can, be, can go, where we are so efficient with our automation now that the data center drives itself and it drives itself cross-platform. It incorporates and correlates all this data together. Welcome to another Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the pleasure of having on the show Jeff Henry from Broadcom. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Great. Thank you. Now, Jeff, you're the Vice President of Strategy and Product Management at Broadcom in the mainframe division. Can't wait to get to know a little bit more about that role and what it entails and what a day in the life of Jeff Henry's like. But before we kick on off, I wonder for our listeners, maybe if we could just do a little segue and get to know you a little bit better. Um, could you share any anecdotes uh, and a little bit of background about yourself around you know, where you're from originally, where you grew up, uh, any insights around your academic and career path that sort of got you to this exciting role? Sure. I, I grew up in the D.C. area, so West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, now North Carolina for the past you know, 30-ish years, uh, and always in the IT sector out of University of Virginia. I uh, started with IBM, moved into CA, and we just got acquired from uh, Broadcom, and it's been a great day since. It's uh, I was as you know I've been talking to a couple of your colleagues uh, who've also been on the show and uh, you know they they tell a similar tale of uh, that journey and um, the thing that resoundingly comes across from them all is that they uh, they see the, the the space that you're in and the, the world you're in now as being a very exciting uh, a future for everyone. I'd love to to get a little insight into the role that you've got as far as um, uh, vice president of strategy and product management at Broadcom and particularly in the mainframe division. Uh, could you maybe just give us a little insight into what that role entails and, I guess, you know, in short, what a day in the life of Jeff Henry is like currently? Sure. Well, I, I don't think, I mean, when you talk about strategy and product management, it's been this way whether I've been in distributed or cloud positions or even in the mainframe division now. Uh, the real black magic to the whole um, career path is how do you look at 100 good ideas of where there's market opportunity to be had? and be able to select the three that best fit your ability to execute. So whether that's your ability with your engineering team to write the right code, or whether that's your ability out in the market to get to the right customer segments and, and have the right sales channel. It's really that kind of dynamic that makes this job the most fun, but also the most challenging. How do you actually focus on the right three areas for growth? Right. One of the biggest challenges I see in the industry is this whole space of IT operations, just keeping the lights on every day. I'd love to get your insights into kind of where you see the world of IT operations changing currently, because you are literally at the bleeding edge of it and, and every aspect, as far as I can tell, in your role. Yeah, I think there are a couple of different areas where it's changing dramatically. And the first one, I think, is just we're in data overload mode at this point. I mean, if you walk into any like networking operations center, you see some poor you know, guy or gal or team of folks staring up at like 30-plus different monitors, and they're trying to make sense of it. And there's more and more data available to us, and that data is moving from like the back office to the front office. So in the past, it was, how do I actually go automate off of some alert? Now, the relationship between all of the various systems across the platforms all into mobile and IoT and then how to take advantage of those, those that, that vast amount of data 
to improve your customer experience has become quite the challenge. Now, at the same time, it's quite the opportunity if you can actually put some intelligence into it and have the machines work in your favor. There's um, that whole challenge of also that whole predictive and, and um, I guess, you know, um, knowing what's coming at you before it happens almost. Uh, and, and a lot of your tools and platforms provide exactly that. And as you said, you know, staring at 30 screens. I, I remember from my youth, uh, you know, little age me now, but, you know, I started out looking at 132-column uh, uh, paper uh, printers, you know, zapping out status reports or running batch jobs, then transitioning to terminals with the... Uh, screens flashing at me and then you know decades later as you said you know just this wall of a systems operations center style thing of just you know air traffic controller style thing trying to figure out what was going to happen next the thing i see now is that that we've got the tools and the capability to see what's coming almost predict it as it were and, and plan ahead for it with that in mind you know, what do you think is inhibiting the it operational ex- excellence uh, challenge today when, when organizations are trying to deliver you know this amazing custom experience and providing the tools to the staff to do that um, what do you see as inhibiting IT operational excellence today? Well, I think when you step back, and it all starts with the data again. I mean, with that vast amount of ever-increasing data, I mean, we've seen about a 88% increase just over the last 12 months. So as you have more and more data coming in, how do you keep up? And when you have all of those different systems, how do you understand the relationships between them? And quite frankly, when we actually look at the complexity between hybrid IT, it's no longer possible to have these you know, systems, machines, data centers siloed into their own space. I mean, we used to take a mainframe and just shove it in the back of the data center and isolate it in every way we can from a security standpoint. Now you've got a mobile app, and it might be a mobile app that you know, people tap constantly to get back into information. So it might be something as simple as storm came through and all of a sudden all these flights are canceled and everybody's jumping on their mobile phone trying to actually figure out how to all resync on the next flight or where to actually stay in a hotel because they're now all stranded. And as they're doing that, they're just continuously pumping more and more activity into that back-end mainframe system or back-end system no matter where it sits. That complexity of understanding why that event is actually causing that additional stress how to cope with it from both an expense and scalability standpoint needs to be something that's planned for, but also that you can react to and take advantage of uh, some of those opportunities that come your way. Then you add like skills into that, especially when you look at, you know, some of the, the mainframe skills that they've got 30 years plus experience of these SMEs. If we can't help get some of that intelligence out of those individuals' heads and into the computers to make more automated responses, then we're never going to be able to get ahead of this. I, I think the challenge with a lot of these things is scale and speed, as you're referring to, isn't it? That you know, if you've uh, if you've got an A three eighty on the ground at uh, LAX, and um, <clears throat> as it may well be the case now, it gets snowed in, or whatever the case may be, or just cold weather, um, you have got hundreds of people on dozens of flights all trying to do that that rescheduling. And so you've got that burst in demand. But the scale and speed at which we're moving it across, even, even without circumstances like that, where there's a, you know, either an emergency or some other issue or just a change in weather, the scale that people are um, moving it now and the speed, it's almost one of those things where humans physically can't keep up with that anymore. We can't stare at 30 screens and imagine what's going on. We've got to automate that process, I guess, really. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, absolutely. I mean, you can't. So uh, what I don't want to come across is you're not going to automate 30 years worth of experience. Those SMEs are there for a reason. 
But a lot of the times now you get folks that are stuck on like a bridge call trying to figure out where a problem area is. And you just waste a lot of resource. And these folks don't like their time to be wasted. They are subject matter experts for a reason. If you can get some of the easy stuff automated and out of the way, if you can get more predictive in nature, just so that people have forewarning of when something's starting to go south and they can take uh, action on it before they actually have a problem that everybody's scrambling for, that just makes everybody's life so much easier and so much more efficient. What's that transition been like with regard to what you're seeing now? I mean, from what we had sort of, you know, one or two decades ago where things could take days to resolve to where we're at today, what, what has that shift been like as far as the, the, the time to resolve issues, the speed to react, and the, the types of approaches that we've got available to us now from the tools you provide? Well, it's still, I mean, industry norm is still very slow. I mean, when you look at what most IT operations, I mean, they lose over $20 million a year just in downtime. And when you add that to what they're looking at as far as, you know, where things are going in the future, over 80% of them think that that's going to, the future downtime, downtime costs are actually going to increase. So we have great potential in front of us, but just the continuous demand on the scalability that we talked about before, the speed that we talked about before, has actually made this you know, continuously worse. Now, wow. when you look at what can be done with automation and getting the simple stuff out of the way, now you can have a dramatic impact. I mean, just think about how getting somebody information two hours before something goes south or something, you know, uh, the downtime occurs before somebody calls in with, you know, a, a support call. I mean, that's, that's just, that can make all the difference in the world. That's where we're seeing the biggest impact right now. That's a nirvana, I guess. You know, when you wander into a boardroom and someone hands you a, uh, a whiteboard mark and says, uh, perform Jedi mind tricks with this thing and show us how <laughs> to address these things, right? When you have those conversations, you must get a sense of, of uh, I guess, you know, the challenges affecting enterprises' ability to deliver innovation and, and go through that whole digital transformation journey. What are some of the insights you can share around that space, particularly the challenges affecting enterprise uh, in, in their whole digital transformation and you know, delivering innovation? So I, I think where we've seen the biggest, the best response from folks are when they step back and they take it a stepwise approach and they say, okay, how do we take machine learning and infuse that into our operations system so that we're constantly gathering the data, searching for patterns in the data, looking for anomalies and, and taking a stepwise approach? And it's not really that much different. I, I guess the analogy that I'll try to use is moving uh, – to a self-driving data center, much like a self-driving car. If anybody would have told me, you know, five, 10 years ago that I was going to stick my kid in a self-driven car and, you know, that could take them to basketball practice, I would have told them they were crazy. <laughs> but <coughs> You and me both, right? I mean, I, I find the idea abhorrent, but then I see the, the advance in the technology and all of a sudden it's a conversation we're having, right? Right. But, and it's one of those that I had no problem taking advantage of cruise control to start. Right. And then they gave me a backup camera and now I don't have to, you know, try to look past my huge, you know, spare tire on the back that I can actually see out the back camera. And then it was wonderful when I start uh, taking a lane change and I get a little blinker on my side view mirror that tells me, don't go now, dummy, there's somebody in your blind spot. Now these are all stepwise approaches to ultimately getting comfortable 
with your car being more intelligent and, and giving you more information to make smarter decisions. That's the same thing we're trying to do with the data center. So instead of having to continuously upkeep static thresholds that you're almost always are either shooting too high to eliminate some false positives or shooting too low and having to rely upon the subject matter experts saying, yeah, those red things, ignore them. That happens every Monday the system comes up. You're trying to find those, how do I shift towards dynamic thresholds? Because the system knows what normal behavior looks like. And normal behavior on the weekend when you're running a bunch of batch jobs is different than you're at when you're in the middle of the system coming up on Monday, which is different than when you're going through your, your monthly or weekly maintenance schedule. So with the system understanding what abnormalities are by mapping against that, you can make far more intelligent choices and do more dynamic threshold anomalies and kick off trigger automation. And then you start gathering enough data that you can look for patterns. And if A plus B plus C happens and the system goes down, well, you don't have to wait for A plus B and then C to happen next time. You have a pretty good statistical uh, analysis on if A plus B happens, 75% of the time C is going to happen and your system is going to go down. So take some predictive measure to that. Yeah. And oh, by the way, if your SME always did the same thing, the last 12 times this happened, recycled the same system or ran, ran through the same checklist, well, maybe you don't need your SMEs to waste their time there. You can have a more junior person do that because now you're doing it predictive instead of trying to recover a machine that's costing you you know, millions of dollars every minute it's down. They do say that the uh, definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing three more times and expect a different outcome, right? Oh, yeah. Just I, automate it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we can automatically be crazy. I do love your analogy with regard to the Kazi because it's so true. And we, we often forget those little stepwise shifts that, you know, um, whether it's uh, something like Netflix knowing what you want to watch next all the way through to the example you gave of the car where, um, you know, these days the, the, the car will even park itself. I, I was wandering down the shops the other day and uh, went to step out in a car spot and there was something beeping at me. I looked up and there's this tiny little European car and uh, the guy was chatting to his girlfriend, and I was like, dude, watch where you're going. And I realized the steering wheel is moving by itself. The car is parking itself. I was like, oh, my God, welcome to 2019, right? But that's, that's even more the case, I think, in, in some of the systems we depend on. And we often forget that things like uh, you know, the Internet itself with Border Gateway Protocol knows how to automatically route around things that get broken. And domain name systems are automated. So why isn't it the case that infrastructure could do that? Well, it can. And I, I think it's an exciting time for us. With all of that in mind, I mean, there are a number of key challenges that people are facing around this whole complex hybrid IT environment that we end up in now because we've got, you know, blends of everything. Um, and that whole challenge of managing operations in that space is becoming increasingly complex. What do you see as being some of the key things that people need to be thinking about with regard to that whole managing operations and sort of, you know, increasingly complex hybrid IT environments today being like? Yeah, so I think that the two extremes here are uh, just how much do you need to scale? Because as you're collecting a lot of that data, it takes up. I mean, data can be pretty uh, can be pretty intense to store and then be able to go all uh, back through in a meaningful time period. So understanding what can be more of forensics analysis versus what needs to be real time or near real time is crucial. Then how to correlate the information. I mean, we talked about in the network operations center that the SMEs are sitting there staring at 30 plus monitors. Well, generally speaking, 
if some dumb schmuck went through the uh, the data center and tripped over the power cord to your storage device, that's going to bring down a lot of things. The storage is going to be related to the database. The database is going to be related to the application. The application is going to be related to the customer experience and performance. So you're seeing a lot of these these alerts and triggers related to one another. If we can understand the relationship and correlate that so that it becomes one incident instead of a whole bunch of different alerts, then you can take advantage of understanding the relationship and build those dynamic topologies on the fly so that you can get back to root cause and see where things really started much more uh, in a much more autonomous way. And then really that other extreme of what can you automate? What can you use? get the simple stuff out of the way so that SMEs can really spend their time where they're the most useful. When you're talking about some of these systems where mainframes have been traditionally used and finance and retail and insurance and you know running a lot of the, the, the core mission critical systems across the world, it's one thing to be able to automate. You uh, brought up uh, some of the, the innovative uh, activity that Netflix or other partners have done in the past or other players have done in the past. It's one thing if your streaming video goes down. It's another thing if your six-figure transaction became five. So right. you need to make sure you understand the business and the political dynamics of what you're automating and can be compliant to that. So the security and compliance elements of this uh, are certainly something that we see all of our mainframe customers very keen on making sure that they can understand and audit themselves on exactly what was done and why. This is one of the big strengths of the platform more than any, I think. And those, you know, we've got, we've had, we've had, you know, Australia's had the, uh, since about 1918, we've had uh, a, a Privacy Act, a law that protects individuals' privacy and it, and it, and it extends all the way to today where it's been mo you know, updated and modified. We've had the uh, EU-US data shield that we've had to operate with, and, and a lot of people thought that only affected Europe and, and, and the US. Then the Swiss modified it with their version. Now we've got the extreme of the uh, Global Data Protection Regulation, uh, GDPR, and, and there's been some actions lately on it. Um, and that impacts the whole world around the whole thing of privacy and data and management, uh, all the way from, you know, from, I guess, what organizations have to do on their platforms, where what you're doing with the mainframe platform life is much easier through to the individuals who, who are impacted. We now have techno technologies on the mainframe like secure service containers and so forth that, that are in place to, to provide some of that. But back to your point with regard to how you deliver that IT operational capability, how you, how you plan ahead of, get ahead of that, I guess, compliance and governance. These days, it's not okay to have an oops moment and look back and go, oh, we didn't comply, is it? You've got to be so far ahead of this thing that you are in compliance all the time and you can report on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things that people have, well, I, I guess one of the first two areas uh, that customers will, will resonate with when we're actually talking about operational intelligence or, or AI ops. First is just make sure that I can isolate where the problem is so I can let my SMEs and often this is so if I know it's not on the mainframe, don't make me pull in all my mainframe SMEs. They've got other things to be doing. So how do I isolate where the problem started to root cause? And then the second one is nobody likes to spend time with all the compliance folks after the after the fact. Nobody wants to be able to track all that down. Just make it obvious and, and record it in a way that can easily be dashboarded, easily be uh, uh, proven from an audit standpoint. Right. That's often the challenge, isn't it? That um, 
Uh, as you said, you know, you throw a bunch of people in a room saying what happened and why, and they're trying to pull it apart. If you've got the tools that you provide and you've got that data at your hand, it's literally a dashboard decision. Someone can almost run around with a tablet in their hands and say, this is what happened. Here's the data related to it, and here's why. You mentioned a phrase there, uh, AI ops, and I'd love to just dive into that quickly. Um, and when you say AI ops, you're, you're talking about artificial intelligence for IT operations, I guess. And, and this is a fairly new term for a lot of listeners, but it's been around for a little while. And, and just to clarify, um, when we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking more about machine learning, looking at the data and, and analyzing uh, using models and patterns to, to, to see what's happening and, and make decisions around that. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to just get your view on on where AI ops uh, or artificial intelligence being used in, in IT operations comes about and how some of that machine learning is applied. If you could. Yeah. So when I think of AI ops, I really think of just the intelligence piece of it. So how are we looking at you know the typical IT operations and quite frankly how that ties into DevOpsSec or DevSecOps depending on which way you want to spell it out and how operations ties between them leveraging the intelligence that you can gather from the data from the machine. So machine learning is really just a way to take your hands off the keys of having to program for every possible event or every possible uh every possible outcome that could yeah. come about because you just can't possibly guess that. So by stepping away from thinking that you can uh, write every rule for every event that might come through and say, let the machine learn, let the machine learn what normal is, let the machine search for patterns, let the machine correlate activities and understand the relationship as things are actually occurring. It allows you to have far more flexibility moving forward. That, to me, is really what AI ops is about. As we leverage more of the artificial intelligence, you can start moving into augmented reality. There's so many places that this can actually go. But at the core of it is just the intelligence. How do we allow the machine to do more intelligent processing for us instead of feeling like we have to write every rule down? That's a good point. I and also, you made a great point about the fact there's a lot of information in, in SMEs' heads that have been there for decades, you know, whether it's 10, 20, 30 years, et cetera. The reality is that they're, they're shifting on and, you know, we're all getting older and folk retiring or just moving to new roles. And if someone does move to a new role, either in the organization or, or another organization, a lot of that knowledge can potentially walk out the door with them or, or just shift or whatever the case may be. I was talking to and, – and, and there's a whole new breed of, of uh, I guess, you know, folk coming into this space – particularly open source uh, developers and so forth, talking to your associate, uh, Sujay Solomon, you know, the Zoe project, some of the stuff you're doing around the bright side, uh, CLI. There's a whole new generation of, of developers, a whole new generation of operational people coming into the mainframe space. The scale and speed that they're being expected to, to manage their operational space, they, they, they just physically, humanly can't do it, and, and they are used to automating things. What are some of the components that, that some of that end-to-end -end IT operational intelligence in, entails? I mean, it's a, it's a big topic. I'm wondering if you could just break it down a little bit further so that listeners can sort of get their mind around or their heads around this whole challenge of, you know, when we think about the, the individual constituent components that are involved in that whole end-to-end -end IT operational intelligence or AI ops you talk about, what are the, some of the components that, that make that possible? What, what goes into that? Yeah, so I, I think we can break it down into four simple categories and keep it still manageable. But then, obviously, the flexibility is where to extend it. Right. So the first one is, how do you gather and correlate all this data? So when you look at it, you can gather data from the network, you can gather data from the database, you can gather data from the operating system or the hardware systems, the performance, the application, the customer experiences, and on and on and on and on. 
but it's correlating what the relationship of those da that data together. The second step is then how do you drive actionable insight off of it? So it's one thing to understand and just dump the data. And you see a lot of tools that can do, you know, very interesting forensics analysis. But then how do you map that to and what are you going to do about it? And how do you start parsing that out into the I can automate some of these things or I might need to tie that into more of a business process automation or resource automation where humans are involved because I want to make sure that I have those SMEs in that knowledge in the past for some of the, the key areas, especially when you start getting into anything that would require like privileged access or security uh, angles to it. Then applying context to it. So if you take the insights and you apply context and that relationships to it, now you start being able to get into things that are more interesting from a, a clustering standpoint or from a pattern standpoint so that now you can start looking at it predictively in the future. So you're not just taking data in real time, near real time, or even historical and making decisions and actual insight off of it, but now you're projecting ahead. And saying, if you see the beginnings of this pattern start to happen again, back to my A plus B plus C scenario, then you can uh, take proactive action and get it out of the way. And then ultimately, at the end, you want to drive automated act actions off of that contextual insight anywhere you can. In some instances, that will be something simple like recycle a system that looked sick. In other instances, it's you know getting people involved earlier. So some of what we've seen... Uh, in the projects that we've run is in order to make sure that your machine learning is working in the way you expect it to, you obviously can't just use test data. You've got to use real customer data. So we've used the, the investment that we make in, in, in agile uh, computing, agile development, to work with customers you know, six months before we ship something to validate that our algorithms are working the way that we expect it to. In one instance, when we're playing back some of this customer's data, the customer came at us and said, you know, we had an outage last week. Find it. <laughs> and my team, in five minutes, was uh, able to show where the outage was. Right. And like, what the customer, the, the fun of this, when we start getting into these kind of uh, real-life examples with customers, you're no longer just saying what the code could do. You're showing them what it really does do. They looked down at the timestamp and they said, you know, that's two hours before anybody called us. And that's five hours before we had any idea what to do about it. And you're pinpointing it right there as an abnormality that, you know, you guys came up with in five minutes. Now, maybe we just got really lucky, but if you take the average of those, it's two hours before anybody had any, anybody ever called. Five hours before anybody had any idea what to do about it. That's where things really start getting exciting, whether you're automating it completely or whether you're just getting information to people quicker. I guess that brings me to my next question uh, that you partly answered there. Uh, I was making notes as you were talking earlier, and one of the questions that jumped out at me was that people are going to, you know, at boardroom level initially, but then through the organization operationally, just start asking, well, if we're going to talk about applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to our operational space, uh, how does AI ops deliver business value to us? I think you just nailed in one there. What other areas do you do you see people now sort of applying AI ops uh, with the tools and capability you've got across the whole Broadcom suite to, to derive business value these days? Where does it, where is it taking us? 
Well, you mentioned skills earlier, and that's certainly a unique one that people bring back a lot with the mainframe group. Because you'll see, you know, a lot of the us that have been around with the mainframe have been around for quite some time. And they'll talk about us aging out of the marketplace and, you know, worried about retirement, et cetera. Well, there's multiple ways to deal with that. We're actually seeing quite a bit of improvement, both with what we do in our own hiring, but also what we're seeing in the marketplace with things like you mentioned uh, the Zoe project that we worked on with IBM and Rocket. Now we have our tools starting to leverage that open source environment on the mainframe so that the mainframe platform doesn't have to be thought of as this isolated, unique beast that you can use Git and Jenkins and Gulp and a lot of these open source projects directly with it. Well, a lot of the business value there is now we can get new skills excited about what can be done with the mainframe without having to learn completely different systems, completely different tools. What we're doing with operational intelligence, it runs as a virtual appliance on the mainframe. It also runs on a distributed system. It's also running for our trial environments in the cloud. So it's not like it's unique to just the mainframe. It's a set of you know, Docker containerized microservices where it runs, it just collects data on different platforms. Right Now, it doesn't have to run off-platform, so you don't have the security of the latency. It can run directly where the data is, so you get to that near real-time. So we see that as the best of both worlds. And that, to me, is the flexibility that the platforms deliver for the best quality of service that the customer is looking for. might be a completely different choice if you're really trying to do AI ops based off of more historic forensics data where you really don't need that near real-time efficiency. And I guess one of the biggest challenges for organizations now is this whole uh, you know, rate of change or pace of change that's just constantly accelerating. You know, when we watched you know, Web 2.0 come along and you know, post-dot-com boom and, and that whole bubble, we saw Web 2.0 come along and then smartphone devices and people could be online all the time everywhere and we were struggling to meet that. You know, big data and cloud and AI and there's a whole bunch of very fast-moving, fast-paced, big challenges. Companies need to be a lot more agile around how they're going to deliver this, uh, whether you know, whether in the retail or, or aviation, as you mentioned before, dealing with the front-end customer or whether it's the back-end stuff of you know, clearing bank transactions or running elections or whatever. There's this need to deliver agility um, to actually match that whole rapid accelerating rate, rate of change. Um, I'd, I'd love to get some insights on kind of where AI ops fits into that space because you must have this tsunami or deluge of requirements from people saying, we can't move this fast, we can't do this manually. How do we apply AI ops to automate this process? How do we apply it to our current teams to get IT operators to focus on what's important and the data that's important, as you just alluded to before with the example of, you know, you knew something two hours before. Um, is that a conversation you're getting on a regular basis? I imagine there's a daily thing of people are just pinging saying, okay, we're a customer or whatever the case may be. We need to be more agile. Uh, help us get AI ops in, in place to, to deal with this rate of change. Yeah, so I think there's two different ways to look at agile. And it's basically either with the little A or the big A. So as just part of a good agile development environment, of course, you want to be able to do whatever development project in short incremental patterns and continuously learn and iterate along the way. Well, something that has intelligence at its core I mean, learning and iterating is what it's all about. I mean, when you look at how machine learning algorithms are, are born, 
generally speaking, when they start, it might take eight hours to come up with what normal is. But with enough data fed through it, it decreases down. And that's what we saw with on our own, down to, you know, uh, four, two, you know, continuously improving by the amount of data that it learns off of. Now, when you look at just flexibility or more of the little a agile, you get into the if you have to do everything as a standalone system, if you're looking at the network data separate from the application data, separate from the storage data, you're just not able to correlate that information and make those more complex decisions quickly enough. Everything is being made in a vacuum and then thrown together. The same thing when you look at hybrid IT and you start you know, focusing on what can be done on the mainframe or what can be do done in distributed or what can be done in the cloud, Unless you look at the stream the whole way from that mobile application, the whole way back to where that backend data resides, whether that's on the mainframe or any other platform, you're not really looking at a holistic approach and understanding ultimately what the customer impact was. And I guess the third place that I would focus on there is just one of the best ways to manage the overwhelming amount of data and complexity of the, of the data is to get rid of what isn't important. But how do you figure out what's irrelevant? So it's not just about figuring out what is important to the root cause, but there are pieces that you can weed out fairly quickly on irrelevant data when you understand the data. So on the mainframe, we have an advantage. A lot of the data that is there is stuff that our products over the years has put there. So we understand it you know, better than anyone else. It also has a tendency to be a little bit more structured than what you'll find you know, just out in the world. So we're able to filter some of that down. And if we are going to move it off platform so that you can look at that end-to-end -end mobile through cloud to the back end, we don't have to send quite as much across. That manages cost better because data can be expensive, uh, especially with some of the vendors that charge by the data. And it can minimize the, the latency and security risks of moving data around as well. One of the big things that jumps out at me with all of this, just listening to that, is that um, you know, the, under, underpinning any operational challenge in any organization is cost reduction. I mean, AI ops must be a, a significant boon just across the organization, not just IT ops, as far as just reducing the cost of operation and day-to-day -day goes. And all those things you're talking about, you know, whether it's dealing with skills shift or skills shortage, automation, predictive, um, this must be a revelation for folk when they're going through this with you and, and understanding what it can do for them, that it must leap off the page for them that, that there's a massive cost reduction opportunity here as well. Yeah, this is one of those that obviously the biggest cost reduction is if you can prevent uh, issues from occurring, then you save that money I talked about before that people are seeing as, as uh, the cost of their systems being down or the cost of recovery. But even if you're just improving the uh, root cause analysis so that you get to the root of the problem faster, that can be tremendously beneficial. Then you add in how automation can go, not just on how to trigger off of a dynamic alert, but when you start automating off of the efficiency of how that application is working or the tuning and the capacity associated with it, now you get into just being more efficient in how you're leveraging data, more efficient in where you run something, more efficient in what priorities and SLAs are associated. 
the more that you can actually attach business value to the application and the correlated data running, the better choice you can make. In some instances, we have programs or, or, or products that, that look at an SLA and can predict when something is going to miss. Well, some of our customers have come back and said, it's less costly for some SLAs for me to miss that and pay the penalty than it would have been to take on the added expense of, say, going over my peak runtime on the mainframe or the cloud environments. On other instances, that I absolutely can't miss those SLAs. So having that intelligence built into the system so that you understand what capacity and what the measurement is on that capacity and the flexibility of where you can change it uh, really adds a tremendous amount of flexibility and agility to what you're actually trying to do in that combined DevSecOps world. We hear a lot of talk about the whole concept of data-driven decision-making at board level and, and through the organization at executive level for business decisions, um, you know, business intelligence, CRM, et cetera. But I don't know that it's necessarily made its way all the way down into operational space, but it seems to me that, that you've achieved that. You've, you've actually delivered a you know, dashboard-style uh, data-driven decision-making capability to, to look at how not just AI ops exclusively, but the whole suite you offer, but particularly AI ops and applying machine learning to these challenges, how they actually make it possible to provide proactive insights into the whole problem prevention and uh, continuous improvement. Um, I'd love to get any other uh, thoughts you've got around you know, that transition from organizations realizing that they can now blend those two where once they might have made data-driven decisions at the top end of the food chain on the, the front end of the business, the, the eureka moment they must be having with you when they realize that they can blend the two and do it at the, the back end of the company and you know, everything from the warehouse and fulfillment and logistics and transport through to operations – there must be some fun reactions when people realize that the same sort of thinking of data-driven decisions can be done across the whole business now. There, there definitely are, but it's still few and far between. Okay. I mean, many of the vendors, many of the vendors provide technologies that can be pulled together so that the business can relate to what's going on from the operations underneath. But it's still often siloed from a house, how our, how customers are set up and how they're run. So the first steps, I think, are being able to show how the various operations teams can run together, then being able to tie into the what we talked about with like compliance and audibility, being able to con connect to those SLAs and where the workload is running and how to move that around so that you can just improve your budget and efficient efficiency. But I think we're really just scratching the surface with that. There's all kinds of areas where we can continue to expand upon truly understanding how that customer experience and that business value is delivered in a more efficient manner and where the right trade-offs can be made. I was actually looking through your various web uh, sites and portals, and, and I just wanted to shout out that there's a really great uh, guide. I think it's titled The Definitive Guide to AI Ops uh, under the um, – the, the, the CA.com Broadcom company website. I think it's uh, CA.com CA slash US slash products. Um, and uh, there's a whole section. There's a really great white paper I downloaded and read. So for a lot of people who are in that position you're talking about where they're still uh, looking at being an early adopter of some of this capability, I highly recommend that listeners jump online. Just search for the definitive guide to AI ops in, in, in the Broadcom company, uh, CA.com website. There's a really good section on it. It talks about all the key challenges you've been mentioning here uh, as we've been talking. 
but I really enjoyed reading that white paper. It really laid it out in, in just common terms for me because uh, it's one of those things that even though I wear a data science hat in some ways on my day-to-day job, I, I really have to admit that the whole focus on big data and analytics and data-driven decisions, I fell into the same trap and sort of you know, always imagining it to the other end of the organization. But at the end of the day, when we think about big data, <laughs> we've got big data on the big data platforms, haven't we, really? I mean, there's an interesting insight to be grabbed from that. Um, now, I, one of the things I love doing with my, my guests when they uh, are on the show with me, and I've had a great time talking about some of these challenges with you, is I, I, uh, before we wrap up, I always ask them to gaze into a virtual crystal ball and uh, just sort of give us some insight into kind of where things are going in the next three to five years. I, I wonder if you could perhaps just gaze into a crystal ball and, and give us some uh, closing remarks or wrap-up uh, uh, vision of you know, where are we going in the next three to five years? What are the big things that we should be thinking about with regard to where we're at currently, where AIOps is, uh, I guess, you know, taking us as far as the industry is concerned? And What's happening around some of the early adopters versus uh, who's going to come later on in the game? Yeah, I think I, I, I played my hand a little bit earlier when I used the analogy of the self-driven car. So when you look at a self-driven data center, the utopia of everything just happening completely automated, that's the direction that we think things can, be, can go, where we are so efficient with our automation now that the data center drives itself and it drives itself cross-platform. It incorporates and correlates all this data together. But the key there then is taking that stepwise approach. So just like many of us are now comfortable with whether the car can park itself or not, we're probably not going to take our hand off the wheel anytime soon. But we're looking for that next step with AI ops and how we can start to let it park itself. So how do we tie into some of the predictive nature of machine learning so that we see advanced warning to where things are going? We take that automated approach to it, and instead of you know waking us up in the middle of the night with a problem, we see the text message on the way in in the morning that says, this is what I took care of last night when we saw something go sick. No, That's no. where I think our crystal ball is more near term. Yeah. Will we ever get to utopia? Does it really matter? As long as we continue to progress in a way that is allowing us to make decisions quicker, to understand data more and flexibly react to what we just don't know yet. I like that. That's, that is like the penultimate close. It's like uh, aim for the moon, but it doesn't matter if you get there because you're always ahead of wherever you started. That's brilliant. Well, uh, Jeff, Henry, thank you so much for making time to catch up with me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and uh, some amazing insights there. Our listeners are going to eat up for breakfast. Uh, Folks, you've just been listening to uh, me chatting with the amazing Jeff Henry uh, from Broadcom. He's the Vice President of Strategy and Product Management at Broadcom's mainframe division. Uh, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for making time to catch up with me and uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show again soon. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you again.